Well, as I mentioned in our opening, Ken Zook is with us this morning. He'll be turning to the book of Job and sharing some thoughts, and um, he finds himself, along with his wife Lisa, in a transition as he closes out a very lengthy chapter in his life from Send International of 20 years or so, and uh, is looking for God's will and direction in his life as he moves forward. And we're thankful that here at First Baptist we can provide uh, some assistance to him in that. Currently, he does work in a very part-time capacity here, uh, ministering and helping us out at First Baptist. And it would be our desire to bring him on in, in a more prominent role as an interim in the coming year, as the Lord sees fit in all of that, to assist us in a number of different areas of ministry as he decides what it is that God would have him to do in the next chapter of his life. Ken has been a trusted missionary of ours for some time now, and I also consider him to be a co-laborer in the gospel. He's a friend. He's of the same mind, and I invite him to the pulpit and uh, willingly share with him the congregation that he might bring a challenge from the book of Job. So, Ken, if you could come, please. As he comes, Lisa, could you just stand so people could uh, see her? She's standing over here to my left. Thank you, Lisa. God bless you, Ken. Good morning, everyone. Uh, It is good to be in the house of the Lord uh, with His people, Uh, and certainly it is good to be here with you because we we really have uh, full hearts uh, of thanksgiving for you, uh, for First Baptist, for the love and care that you have shown us. Uh, over 20 years of walking with us, of investing in our lives and investing in the kingdom work of God in Russia and uh, a few other places. So thank you. And and those words are are too few for sure. Uh, It's not a spasiba, which is just thank you in Russian. It's a serdechna blagadrim. It's from the heart, a gratefulness. And we are very thankful. As Pastor Jim mentioned, uh, we will be in in the chapel uh, in the second hour. For those of you who could make it, that would be great. We'll we'll walk through those 20 years of what God has done. As we have been sharing every week uh, in a different church, uh, over the number uh, of weeks I've lost count, we have a few more of those uh, coming. We have been sharing lessons, or I have been sharing lessons as the Lord gives opportunity to share from the Word lessons that we have been learning uh, of how to walk by grace alone. If you know us, if you remember us, even from the very beginning, this was the phrase that we have been repeating over and over, only by grace. Uh, Certainly our salvation is only by grace, but also our sanctification. And as we serve the Lord, it's only by His grace. Why? so that it can be for him alone to the glory of his name. So I'm going to do that again uh, this morning from the book of Job. Uh, I know Pastor Jim said you get a reprieve uh, from hearing him. I'm not really sure I would agree with that. I would love to hear him, but I'm not probably going to give you a reprieve from the message of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We're going to the book of Job, Um, not the happiest book that we could find, but a very important one. And I really commend you as a church 
uh, and commend Pastor Jim to walk through Ecclesiastes, uh, a very tough book, a very uh, tough book to wrestle with, but in this day and age, it's so important for us to face the weight of reality and the weight of eternity. We have to prepare ourselves to live in a world that's really not our home, although we try to make it our home, but we have to acknowledge the depth of the mess and brokenness that this world is in and the depth of our desperate situation as sinners before God. We always need something or someone outside of ourselves. And that's the message probably that we're going to end up looking at here this morning as we talk about brokenness and worship. Do the two go together? Can they go together? And why? Uh, Maybe this is a message that if all of you exited, like uh, I believe you exited last week, but not during the service, that it would be fine because I would be here to hear it. Uh, I, I don't usually share anything unless... It is really something the the Lord has brought me through and is teaching me. And this is so close, so close to my heart, Lisa's heart. Uh, So maybe this is just a review for me. And you're listening into that. But surely God will work through his word as we talk about brokenness and worship. God's work of grace in particular, in brokenness that brings us to worship or allows us to have unbroken worship, even in grief, even in suffering, as this grace work to know, to walk, to experience God like we wouldn't have otherwise. When brokenness overflows into worship, it is not natural. It's not natural. It's the work of God. It's the work of his grace in our life for that very moment. Uh, The person of faith is one who, as we're going to see, like Job, knows what it is like to be torn apart by the enormity of God. I could spend a long time going through Job with you all, and it has become one of those books that I'm just going to over and over that God would teach me that as I am confronted with his holiness, with his sovereign power, with his, with his eternality, his, his wisdom that is so beyond ours, his uniqueness, his self-existence, his perfect pur- uh, purpose and providence, his goodness to bring about that purpose without asking us first. <laughs> Amazing how God does that. He doesn't come to us asking us, how is the best way to do this? But we recognize our brokenness, our finite wisdom, our weakness, and that drives us to worship Christ as our only sufficient Redeemer. Often when suffering and and trials and hardship come in, we either say, I'm okay, I'm strong enough, I can pull myself up from my bootstraps, right? Or we say, why? Why? Where is God in this? Well, he is in the brokenness, and he wants to walk with us through that brokenness for a very specific purpose of making much of his name. So today, no doubt, there are ones, even right now, who are struggling. There may be many of us who are struggling with things that we haven't even shared because it's too deep to share. There are certainly ones who have struggled, 
who have been broken, who have been hurt, who have grieved. So as we come here, I understand that there are ones who are struggling with loss, maybe of job, of future loss of physical abilities, maybe that's in aging. Uh, Loss of things that we like to do, and we like to do them when we do them, the way we want to do them, and we can't do that anymore because something has been taken away. Loss of loved ones, loss of family. And life is so uncertain, it seems it's teetering on the edge of destruction for us. So I'm praying that you do not hear from me today, just get over it, just move on. Just have more faith. Or any of those flighty responses that we'll hear. I, I'm praying that you do not hear that from me today. Uh, you will certainly not hear from me that you should expect an easy life, comfort, pain-free, without any grief, because we're Christians, right? You're not going to hear that from me. I don't think you expect to hear that from me. I don't think you expect to hear that in this place, right? We have a grasp of reality. And today as we go through, grief and loss, we have to understand, changes us. We don't get over it. It changes us. We don't move on. In fact, from that point on, everything is different. Different perspective, different way of of looking at life, different way of approaching God. And God means for it to be different when we go through hardship and trials and loss. So my hope is today that we can bow before the face of our gracious God, worship Him, and understand that that worship can happen and will happen in and through brokenness. That we will see that we are stewards, not just of what God gives us, which is so often, that's the end of the conversation, but also in the crumbs that he has left behind after, after he has taken things away from us. We are stewards of those crumbs. We are stewards of loss and what we do with that loss as God either abruptly takes it away or slowly over time, little by little, he's taking things away. He's the master. We're the stewards. We have to be stewards of both of those things. And in fact, the world is watching us as we grieve, as we go through loss, as we approach and face even death. Uh, According to Job, in fact, the unseen world is watching this. There are meetings, there are committees, there are councils who are talking about these things as God shows that he is worth it. We are stewards in brokenness and in loss. We're stewards in aging. We're stewards even in death. So I want us to gently walk through a text of Job, uh, really just looking at the very beginning, the prologue uh, here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Job chapter 1. We're really only going to look at uh, some parts in Job 1 and then also in Job 2. Uh, So, as I said, only by grace in the last 20 years, the Lord is teaching us lessons, and he does that through suffering, he does that through loss, he does that 
through deep grief, uh, pain, uh, many tears have been shed in these last 20 years. Many dear, dear people the Lord has taken out of our midst, uh, really going back to the very beginning. <laughs> in fact, when I was in language school, uh, the Lord took my mom. While we were how many time zones away, I, I don't even remember, uh, halfway around the world, uh, very difficult, very sudden, although we knew her, her health was, was declining uh, rapidly, but it still was sudden, and it, it changed our life. Uh, immediately, of course, it changed the location of where we were for a time as we quickly found uh, some flights out of there, out of Far East Russia. But over the years, there's been so many things. Uh, dear servants who served with us among people who have no access to the gospel, no churches among their people, uh, very little resources in their language, and God took two choice servants out of our midst, young, died with cancer suddenly, very quickly. It just tears us apart. God teaches us these lessons. And those lessons are ongoing. It almost seems like it isn't letting up as we go through this life. Uh, but there are also lessons that we learn through others. As we see others, observe others, how they're standing firm for Christ, even in the midst of suffering and loss, persecution even. And it has, uh, is showing us, showing the world that Christ is worth it to follow him. They worship God for who he is, for what he has done, and what he is preparing us for. We have the privilege, the great privilege, of serving among a people who have, from the world standards, nothing. Poverty, way below that poverty line that somebody draws across the graph chart, way below. And yet, in Christ, they have everything. What a privilege for us to walk with them through that. So as we look at Job here this morning, Job uh, is, of course, that book that we wrestle with. And we want to go to it and find the answer, the reason why is there suffering. I'm not so sure it gives us those answers the way we want them, but it, just, it does bring us to God and who he is and helps us to realize that even in brokenness, we can worship and in our, broken, our brokenness becomes, in fact, our worship. So this morning as we go through this, I, unfortunately I don't have um, slides. I didn't, just didn't have time to put those together, and I'm also not very used to doing that. Uh, living and ministering in a world where technology is almost absent <laughs> in our gatherings. Uh, so I don't have that, but I'm going to give you a quick outline of what we're going to do this morning. We're going to quickly look at the structure of the book talk a little bit about that, but then we're going to look at the prologue, specifically chapters 1 and 2, and, and make some key observations as we walk through that, and then we're going to finish with looking at some of the lessons that we see that move us in our brokenness to worship Christ. So, first of all, the structure. Uh, Job falls into this classification of wisdom literature. Uh, wisdom literature is interesting because it actually doesn't move us along in that redemptive story. 
Uh, it doesn't move us along in uh, bringing us to the point of God sending his son to die uh, for sinners and on the third day rise again. Wisdom literature is a little bit of a pause. It's a teaching so that we can understand how to navigate in God's economy, in God's world as obedient followers of Christ. Uh, Now, wisdom literature, as it's set in the Old Testament, uh, there is a normative Old Testament thinking that we find in wisdom literature. Obedience brings blessing. And the opposite, disobedience brings curses. It's not karma, (laughs) okay? Uh, we We kind of fall into this notion of karma with our works mentality. It just fits very nicely with our thinking, but it's not that. But it is how God set things up for Israel. So this wisdom literature often will, will display this normative thinking that obedience equals blessing, disobedience just the opposite, curses. Uh, that's why, in fact, and we're not going to get into this, Job's friends are insistent that Job sinned. There is some secret sin that Job is not repenting of. Therefore, he is receiving uh, the curse of curses, right? The worst of the worst. But just like Ecclesiastes, and in fact, uh, the Lament Psalms, the book of Job breaks that cycle. It breaks that cycle of the Old Testament blessings and curses. You reap what you sow. There are exceptions. There are exceptions. And in fact, how the reaping happens, when it happens, all that entails the reaping is dictated by God. Not necessarily dictated by our sowing. God rules the world. He rules his kingdom. And this rule is of a different order from what one might expect. So, in fact, if we think about this, we totally expect the world to work this way. If I obey, if I do this, then God will bless me. There are exceptions. And there's a danger because we get caught up into this works mentality that if I can only do this for God, then he will reward me with something else. How many have skipped their morning time with the Lord, had a bad morning, and the thought is, ah, God is slapping me around because I missed that morning devotion. It's the works mentality that gets into us. Careful reading of wisdom literature shows us that the workings of God are actually very complex. We cannot predict outcome. We cannot reduce our life or reduce God to a formula. You can't do it. Even if you could, which you cannot, God would cease being God. We can't predict the outcome of God. We can't predict what he will do in any situation because he has full right as the creator and the sustainer to do as he pleases. And it doesn't always align with the way we think he should do it. Job, in fact, here shows us that the book of Job, the righteous are not invariably spared from suffering. 
Indeed, they sometimes suffer in agonizing and inexplicable ways. Case in point, the Son of God. So Job, just like Ecclesiastes, even though life has mysteries, uh, mysteries that baffle us, we are still called upon to fear the Lord and submit to Him in humble obedience. And that can happen even in deep brokenness, in suffering, in loss, and in grief. Uh, If I were to give the simplest uh, outline structure of the book of Job, uh, there are two narratives, a narrative at the beginning, a narrative at the end, that is the prologue and the epilogue. Chapters 1 and 2 make up this prologue. It's a narrative uh, genre of writing. It ends in the same way, chapter 42, really the middle of the chapter to the end. Again, a narrative. What comes after the prologue is poetry, set in very dramatic fashion. So we start with Job's speech of despair. That's chapter 3. Then we move into these cycles of speeches, and we are by no means uh, have the time to go through that, but we see these cycles uh, of speeches. And again, that is set in very, very heavy poetry as it sets out um, Job and his friends going back and forth, back and forth. And then just before the epilogue, there's God's speech of power. We won't probably go there either, uh, but this is chapter 38 up to 42, verse 6. And this is God speaking in that whirlwind that really leaves Job absolutely speechless. He's confronted again with the enormity of God. In his suffering, he only has one answer, to humbly submit and worship. So that's the quickest way to look at the outline of the book of Job, but we're just going to spend some time now in the prologue, chapters 1 and 2, and make some observations. Again, this is a narrative drama flipping between different sets, so to speak, a set on earth, and then this window, this set that looks into heaven. And really, these first two chapters are devoted to similar events unfolding in two different ways in these respective chapters. And chapter 1 unfolds according to the following, following sequence. I'm going to look at four different elements that are, in fact, mirrored in chapter 2. But the first element here is this opening portrait of the good life. Uh, and as Old Testament, Old Testament believers, this is exactly how they would conceive it, and that is particularly in verses 1 through 5. Reading verse 1, just is talking about Job's character and his wealth. This sets the stage for the man. And in Hebrew, very emphatic how this sentence is structured. To start off this book, the emphasis is on the man called Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. From evil. So again, very strong emphasis on the man. And then it lists these bountiful ways in the following verses that God has provided for him. Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, many, many servants. It ends by saying this was a great man. 
And the Old Testament reader, and in fact really us, this is good sowing. Job must have sowed really well because it's proper reaping. This is proper for God to bless this man in the way he did because of Job's sowing. This is the way it was meant to be. When we talk about the authenticity, when it says here that he was blameless, uh, upright, it doesn't mean he's without sin, but it does mean he is, uh, nothing can come against him. He is authentic. He is what, on the inside what he is on the outside. In fact, John Calvin says that Job was fully devout, didn't have one eye on the world and the other on God. There was no halfway faith for Job. Calvin goes on to explain in his sermons on Job, which are three large volumes uh, that I think just recently came out in print in English. Uh, He goes on to explain that Job was whole. No pretense of hypocrisy in this man. What is on the inside shows on the outside. So this narrative sets up for us, what is going to happen to this great man? This man of integrity, this blameless, authentic follower of God. We would think that only the best outcome is awaiting Job, right? This is the way it's meant to be. Proper reaping. Proper reaping. Proper. He should get everything. Even though he already has it. So flip to verse 6. And we're going to flip here to the second element that we see mirrored again in in chapter 2. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. But flip to this heavenly council scene. Verses 6 through 12. uh, Just a couple of verses what I'll read here. But verse 6, you know this story well. This is where something is going on behind the scenes that Job never sees. Never knows about this meeting. Which is shocking in understanding his response. Because it would be real easy for us to respond the way we're supposed to respond if we knew all the reasons of what's going on behind the scenes. But we don't. We are also blind to those. That is withheld from us. I think for a very good reason that is withheld from us as it was here for Job. So in verse 6, in verse six now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, or in the Hebrew, this is interesting, all through Job, the Satan, or the accuser, the definite article is always attached to Satan. The adversary. It's always there. So, on this day, before the Lord, the council of the heavenlies are coming together, presenting themselves before Yahweh. And the Satan, the the accuser, was also there. Uh, God wants an update. This is not meant to be a light of this, but could we call it a staff meeting? A council meeting. God wants an update, and the accuser has been roaming the earth, he says, when God asks him, where have you been? What have you been doing? I've been roaming the earth. And then God asks Have you considered his servant Job, who is blameless, who is upright, a man who fears God and turns away from evil? It seems that God, Yahweh, knows exactly what the accuser is up to. 
he knows where he, what, his, what his roaming is all about. And then he suggests, what about Job? Satan didn't come running in and say, that man, Job, is worthless. No, it was God who actually turned the attention of the accuser to this upright man. He brought it up first. But he knew what he was up to. And he had a role, has a role as the adversary, as the accuser. He has a role in God's counsel here. And that is to roam about looking for people to accuse as he is the adversary of God. There's going to be a challenge here, but before I talk about the challenge, which you, again, know very well, let's first of all talk about the fight, the battle here. This is not a fair fight. God and Satan are not equals. Light and dark are opposites. God and Satan, okay, maybe we play that out and we say they're opposites. They are not equals. Satan, the accuser, is subservient to Yahweh. He doesn't do anything here through the book of Job without God giving him permission, right? So this is not a fair fight. If God and Satan were to come together and, and Satan makes a challenge, God would, without effort, end the challenge because of his absolute power and supremacy over his creation, Satan is created being. Okay, so it's not a fair fight. So how then does God prove something to this counsel and in fact to the accuser? How does God set this, this battle up, this fight up, so that it's actually a little bit more fair? It's through a man. It's through his creation that he wants to prove something of his worth and of his value. If God and Satan did it, not equals, it would be over. Does it prove a point? God saw that it didn't. And he chose a man that Satan would touch and remove things from so that he could prove his point and prove his worth before this council. So the accuser comes and, and makes a challenge. He fears you because you protect him and you bless him. In fact, the more he gets, the more he fears you. He says in verse 11, But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So the challenge really is about allegiance. Allegiance, love, praise, are any of them genuine? You give him everything. You protect him all the time. Of course he's going to love you. Of course he has allegiance to you. Is, God's, is God worth and worthy of man's devotion? If he's stripped of everything, will he still be devoted to God? That's the challenge. That the accuser, the adversary, who through the book, I guess through this prologue, we actually think that he's the adversary of Job. Certain points I would agree with, but he's really the adversary of God. He is attacking God's worth and his value. 
So then the third element, we've already talked about two, uh, the, the uprightness of, of Job, of this man, then the heavenly council, the scene. Now we go back to earth. The set changes and we find the third element, which again is mirrored in chapter 2. That is the exceptional calamity that befalls Job. As his children, his fortune, everything is taken away from him in verses 13 through 19. In a single day, he lost his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camel, his servants, and most difficult, most important here, even his children. This third element is not one that makes us comfortable. Because who brought up Job in the first place? Who brought attention to this upright man before the accuser? It was God himself. To prove something. That he is worthy of this man's and our devotion, worship, and praise. Job's response, this is the fourth element. All these elements, again, we're going to see repeated A little bit different order, but repeated in chapter 2. But here Job's response is stunning. Uh, The fall colors of the Northeast are stunning. This, I, I don't know another word. This is stunning. What Job, how Job responds here. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1. Job arose, and this is after everything was taken away from him. Job arose tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Listen to his words. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Both grief and worship flowed from Job's heart. Both. Simultaneously, grief and worship. He acknowledges the Lord's sovereignty. He acknowledges the Lord's goodness. And he praises God's name despite the abrupt and heavy losses that he just experienced. Remember, all the while, Job has no idea of the challenge. He doesn't know anything about the accuser coming and setting this challenge before God. He doesn't know that God was the one who redirected the accuser's attention as he was roaming over to Job. He had no inside information. He didn't have a backstage pass to this council meeting in heaven. Yet, in his brokenness, he worships we have to stop and really pause and think about this as Job, a man who had very little information, very little revelation of, of God and of God's plan, he saw himself as a steward of what God had given him, and that included being a steward in the day when God would remove it all. For a time, this is God as the master He saw fit to enrich Job, to provide for him, even to the point of abundance. Beyond comprehension, really, for us to understand all that Job had. God, as the sovereign one, has the right to take those same things away from Job. Job is a steward 
of what God gives him and also what he leaves him as he takes things away. Both giving and taking away pleases Yahweh. How I understand my stewardship in the giving and the taking away shows where our worship is. The giving and the taking comes from God's hand, yet my heart usually only approves of what? The giving. That's what we really like. But the taking away, not so much so. But we are stewards of both. We're stewards of both. In order to bless God's name, we have to first get in order what, that he is just, that he is good, that he is sovereign, that he is right in both the giving and the removing. So that's chapter 1, but chapter 2 is a companion uh, to chapter 1, a repeat, in fact, of the same mo- motifs. Uh, for us, it's a literary repetition. Uh, I think it's to accentuate all the issues that were already presented to us in the narrative of chapter 1. So it reads like a rerun. The heavenly council scene, though, starts it off, the first element, verses 1 through 6. Then it moves quickly to verses 7 and 8. Job is afflicted. Uh, Here the accuser is coming and saying, okay, that didn't work. Uh, He still blessed God's name in the end, but here's the ultimate test. Strike Job himself. Now we'll see for certain whether he serves God only for what God gives him. Now God allows everything to be taken away. He says, touch him, just don't kill him. What would have happened if it had gone too far? There's no way to see the result or the outcome of this challenge, of this test. God chooses to use a man to show that he is worthy of his creation's devotion and worship. And if Job's life ended abruptly, uh, there's no outcome. So he wisely says, he just has to live. Again, Job exhibits exemplary patience and reverence. We see that in verses 9 and 10. Even Job's wife then comes, and she's surprised that he's even held on this long uh, uh, to his integrity. And advises Job to curse God and die. And listen to his response in verse 10, chapter 2. He says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women, as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all that uh, that Job did, he did not sin with his lips. Job is again going back to what God gives I'm going to receive it as a steward. And when he takes it away, I'm also a steward of even that. We can't just receive good from him and not receive evil. What's interesting is as we go through this prologue, we understand that because Job didn't understand, didn't see this heavenly scene, he attributes everything to who? God. He doesn't run around saying, Satan did this, the devil did this, Uh, Satan uh, took this away from me. He doesn't do that. He attributes all of it to God. And yet, this is why it's so stunning, he falls down in worship. Job's inside is the same as his outside. 
This goes right back to how he was blameless and upright. He was a man of authentic faith. He was the same on the inside as he was on the outside. His resolve is to worship God because of who he is, not what he gives. And this proof of it came in his brokenness, in his loss as he bows and worships. His brokenness says God is worth it because his brokenness included worship. He worshiped because he didn't lose God. And at the end of chapter 2, the narration, in fact, adds to this dramatic effect, the arrival and the silence of Job's three friends. Uh, It would have been great if it ended there. (laughs) Uh, But we'd have a much smaller book of Job, and we would lose out on many, many lessons of, of this struggle of the narrative or the uh, the normative understanding of the blessings and the curses, and, and just understanding again that God is not to be put in a box. We cannot come up with a formula to determine that if I do this plus this plus this, God will do this. God is God. We can't figure him out. And I think that's why we have those speeches to help us wrestle through that, wrestle through that. But at the end, he says, um, uh, they come and they just sit with him seven days and seven nights. And no one speaks a word to him. It says in verse 13, for they saw that his pain was very great. Uh, We could spend a lot of time talking about this as well, but we don't have time. One lesson that, again, we learned quite early on in Russia was um, when you ride a bus, which you will do when you're in cities because it's the way to get around, nobody talks. It's very silent. It's a little bit weird because it's part of their culture, I guess, but it's very counterculture for us. Usually, you know, Americans are called the, the loud Americans, right? The, the tourists that come and they're always talking, they're always loud. In Russia, very silent, very reserved. And on buses, it, it seemed eerie to us. And I asked my language teacher, why is this? And you know what his answer was? He said, because you never know who is on their way to a funeral. And if we're coming in loud and boisterous, talking about all, all kinds of things, jolly and happy, with no cares in the world of the troubles that surround us. It offends other people. There are so many lessons to being humble in our gratefulness and not coming across, because we don't understand what other people are going through, flighty and just not thinking of others and the grief that they may have already experienced or are experiencing. In fact, we had this happen to us. Somebody, right after we, we had to flee Russia, we, we came back on this side. And I was talking to somebody, and he was telling me about how God had blessed him with this huge house. I just about came out of my skin. That's a very honest way of me saying I was pretty upset. But I kept it inside because we just lost our house. And we have lived and served with people who had a shack, or that's what we would call it. We, we thought it was, they were beautiful homes, but they had nothing. And they were blessed by God. 
It's not about the material things that God blesses us with that we get. Why do we get so excited about those things? And we don't talk about the blessings we have in Christ. Eternal blessings from heaven that nobody takes away. It's adoption. It's salvation. It's forgiveness. Redemption. Those are the blessings that we should be talking about. But we talk about how big our house is or what a great job I have or how my family, everybody's following the Lord or everybody's going to college and they've got great jobs. When you tell that to other people, please listen to me with just gentleness. I am not judging anybody. Be gentle because it could actually be very offensive to other people. As we don't understand, we don't even take the time to understand the pain and the grief that they may be going through. Job's friends got it in the beginning. There's so many lessons here, but I'll move on. Humble gratefulness uh, and just being aware of hardships that surround us are very important. So looking at the prologue, looking at some of these observations and just seeing uh, this challenge that is set up before us, uh, a challenge that is done through a man for the purpose that it's not a fair fight between God and Satan, but for the purpose of showing that God is worth it in the end. And that comes out in our brokenness and our worship that are mingled together. Okay, I want to draw out from there some principles. We could talk about a lot of principles from the book of Job, uh, many that we've already, you know, probably heard about God's sovereignty over all things and so on and so on. But these key principles, I think, are more tied, I guess, to Job's response, his response of humility and, and, and bowing down in worship and fearing God. So the first one is very clear from chapter 1 and chapter 2, and that is what we have today from God, he could take away tomorrow. He can do that. Even to the upright, the righteous, the ones who have integrity, he can do that. He has, and he will again. What we have today from God, he could take away tomorrow. Suffering and grief often enters unexpectedly, abruptly, with no warning. It's never invited, right? Grief is never invited. Suffering is never invited. Now, sometimes it's over time. It's a long period of time, in fact, as the suffering continues and things are removed, taken away, and we release those things that God gave us at one point in our life, but now he's removing those things. Job's reverence results from a heart of conviction that God is the author of everything. For Job, both bounty and loss were a reason for humble worship. Out of reverence, we submit as stewards, not just of what he has given, but also of the crumbs that he's left behind after he has taken certain things away, certain people out of our lives, certain abilities that we used to have. As he takes those away, we are still stewards of even those things. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Feel the weight, the weight of his lordship. And the weight of our stewardship. He gives for a reason and he takes away 
for a reason. It's done in his way, on his terms, in his timing. In our brokenness, we have the privilege, though, to demonstrate to the world around us that Christ is ultimate, even in loss, even in hardship, and even even in death. Christ is ultimate. So what we have today from God, he could take away tomorrow. A second principle is that brokenness is part of worship. Our faith is challenged, yes. Uh, we're brought to that point of crumbling under the pressure. And if it hurts this bad, we, we say, God is not on my side. And we ask, where is he? Why is he doing this? But we have to understand that worship and brokenness is deep. Worship that comes from brokenness is raw and genuine, and they complement one another. This would be where I would branch off and talk about lament, because I think we need to learn about lament. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. The promise that's coming. It's not right now. It's not in the here and now. Again, lament probably is just like what I was talking about before, this brokenness in worship. Lament is not natural. It's a work of grace because lament stands in the gap between pain and promise, between heartbreak and hope. It stands in the gap. Cries out to God, but it also recognizes His goodness to carry us through to those promises that God hears us, that he shows up, that he will deliver us. And in those times, God really redirects and recenters our heart on his name being great no matter what, no matter what my circumstance is, and even if it doesn't change. There are many lament psalms that are spoken that the circumstance never changes. The writer says, things that astound us, seems like things have changed, gotten, gotten better, God has already delivered him, but it hasn't changed. Lament is standing in the gap between that pain and the promise, the heartbreak and the hope. And God's honor really is at stake uh, in this, as it was in Job and this challenge. God sends the storm to show us that he is the only one who can rescue us. There's nowhere else to run. There's a very interesting pattern we see in, in Psalm 50, verse 15. Uh, Call upon me in a day of trouble. I will deliver you when and how. That's up to God, right? And you will glorify me. That pattern happens over and over and over. And it should. That's the way God determined it to be. In the day of trouble, we call out to him. He will deliver us on his terms, in his way, in his timing, and we will glorify him. The third thing is that God works patience and endurance in us as we wait under this suffering and affliction for unbroken worship and for the glory of his name so that we will not over, be overcome with anguish or abandon our faith, God's sustaining strength yields in us endurance 
in affliction, in suffering, and brings us over and over to God's good purpose and his good plan as we submit to that. It is not us pulling up ourselves from our bootstraps. It is not us saying, I can do this. Uh, 20 years ago, I remember being brought in, taken aside as I uh, answered some questions as we were uh, joining Sand International, and they had had these questions about, it was a psychological test, I think, but they asked these questions, and it came out that I was very down on myself, I guess. Uh, I would not answer a single question differently today. Apart from Christ, I am nothing. I am weak. I am nothing apart from Christ. Everything is from Christ. That is the right attitude. That is what Scripture says. God works patience and endurance in us to go through the hardest of times. Calvin said, if there is grief, let it be mitigated by acknowledging that God always continues to work for our salvation. God works for our salvation. So as we grieve, let it be known that God is at work. He gives us endurance. He gives us sustaining strength to go through our days. In fact, Calvin goes on to say the purpose of his goodness, God's goodness in our trials, is always to draw us to himself which we are always slow to do. There are times when he must subpoena us to show us his absolute authority over us. Calvin equates a subpoena to affliction and suffering and loss and grief. God subpoenas us to understand that he is God. He is righteous. And he is worthy. Second Corinthians 4.17 says, Through affliction, he is what? Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In fact, there's no comparison to these light afflictions, these momentary afflictions, to the eternal weight and eternality of the glory that awaits us. The capacity to worship matches the worthiness of his greatness as we go through this. So God works patience and endurance in us under suffering for unbroken worship. And if we're broken, that is not a sign that we cannot be worshiping at the same time. It was true of Job. Grief and worship were mixed together. Came out of that brokenness a beautiful moment of worship. Lastly, and number four, in light of eternity, it's necessary and right. I can't believe I'm going to say this. To suffer. It's necessary and right that we should suffer. To demonstrate that God is worth it. I feel like the bearer of bad news. I'm sure you've heard this before. This is nothing new to us. It is necessary and right that we should suffer. Because it demonstrates that God is worth it. Uh, 
I think I've said this before years ago when I, I, was, I believe I was standing here and I, I said even our clinging to God is not from us. We say that. We say I'm clinging to Christ. That's also a work of grace, that clinging. As we cling to God, which comes from Him in suffering and trials, it's the proof to the world, according to Job, even the unseed world, that God is worth everything. He is ultimate. His value is ultimate. And it's not what He gives, but it's who He is. So worship is not connected to what He has given, but in fact connected to His perfect character. And that's why it's, in light of eternity, it is actually right and necessary that God's people suffer so that we can demonstrate that He is worthy of our praise, of our worship. And by this, we put God on display. We prove absolutely and without a doubt that our faith and worship is not based in temporal, material, momentary gifts, but on the greatness of Christ as our King and Savior, and Shepherd, and Lord over all of our life. Trials are necessary to demonstrate fully, deeply, our obedience to the glory of God, and this is a work of God in us. It drives us to worship. Our witness is not ruined by our brokenness. It is, in fact, enhanced. We praise God when he gives, but God praises God even when he took away. And I hope that's true of us as God works his grace in us. Job worshiped and blessed God even as he took everything away from him, even as he touched him physically, he still saw the superior worth of God. And it was evident to even the heavenly council. And it's evident to us today as we have the opportunity to study and read these scriptures. The purpose of God in setting Job up was fulfilled. Uh, the revelation of the value of God. That's about this demonstration of the worth of God uh, in the faith and reverence of his people in the, is actually the most important matter for God here in the book of Job. This worth is shown in and through the brokenness. And it doesn't happen when we avoid grief and loss or brokenness or uh, that we deny it or ignore it or refuse to even acknowledge that there are losses that change our life. Uh, we don't want to be stewards of crumbs, but when we really uh, submit to the Lord, we have to understand that as he takes it away, it is to demonstrate that he is worth it as we walk as stewards of what even remains after he is taken away. The glory of the Lord is more important than our comfort, more important than us having things our way. The glory of the Lord is ultimate. And our worship in brokenness proves it. It's proof of it. So when calamity comes, may the Lord give you the grace to affirm the sovereignty of God that your tears would flow freely that also doesn't negate the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the worth of God. But let him be 
your treasure and your joy because he is eternal and he will not be taken away from us even though we have all these other things removed from our life. We pray with me. Father, for me, speaking on these things, I feel quite uh, heavy. Heavy because of the experiences that you have brought us through and heavy because I know that those experiences will continue, in fact, on this journey, uh, on this path that you have us on. And Lord, I'm also heavy because I know that there are many here that are hurting, that are fearing loss, maybe. That maybe even these words and this uh, peek into the book of Job has has stirred back up grief that someone may have thought was gone. And that's not my intent, Lord, but I'm heavy to know that that's quite possible, what you've done today. But Lord, as you work through your word and, and show us this great challenge that was uh, demonstrated to the heavenly council uh, as the accuser came and, and said that there is no way that this Job will, will praise you when you take everything away. Lord, teach us the deep lessons of you being the giver and also the one who takes things back. Help us to be the stewards uh, that you want us to be, to make much of your name and your greatness, even in our brokenness, that we would humbly vow, just like we see here in Job, humbly bow in worship as we fear you alone. This is not something that we can do naturally. I am convinced of that as I've seen you work your grace in others around me and in ourselves. Your work of grace to give us endurance and patience and hearts that will come to you and worship you no matter what our circumstances are. Lord, out of lament, sometimes that comes. As we cry, as we have anguish in our hearts, as we are in this in-between of loss and also promise, of heartache, but also hope. Lord, may you give us hope, your people, hope that even if we're not suffering today, we may be suffering tomorrow and Lord, we meet that with our hope in you and our trust in you as a God who loves us enough to send your son to come and taste death for us. Take our place on that cross and victoriously rise again on that third day. Our hope is in you. Our strength is in you. And Lord, Help us to understand how we can worship out of and through our brokenness. You are a great, great God. And we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Would you please stand and join us? We're going to close our service out by singing.